Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Schreck podcast series. The Tax Reform Act created a new program to encourage capital investment in over 8,700 opportunity zones throughout the United States. The program has the potential to provide investors in opportunity zones with a deferral of capital gains taxes until 2026, along with a possible elimination of tax on the appreciation recognized on the investment in an opportunity fund. Brownstein attorneys, including those working on the front lines of tax regulation in Washington, discuss steps you can take to benefit from this new federal tax program. I'm Nicole Ament, real estate shareholder at Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek, and we're so happy to have everybody here this morning uh, for a topic that we are getting questions about daily, qualified opportunity funds. Great new tax incentive program. We'll get into the details of it, but we at Brownstein are hyper-focused on this because it is a great intersection for us, for our real estate department, our government affairs department, our great tax department. Rick's still playing with this. Um, and all our specialties. And with all of our real estate and corporate clients, everybody is looking into this, and we wanted to take this opportunity to get a little ahead of the curve, give you the information. The state of Colorado is on top of this, well ahead of other states. And we are excited about the opportunity that it brings. It's hard not to use the word opportunity, by the way, when you talk about the Opportunity Fund, and it feels a little odd, um, but it's the best word for it. So uh, we're very excited, um, and for this program this morning, too, we're excited to be partnered with the Metro Denver Economic Development Corporation because they are the end-all, be-all um, in incentives in the state of Colorado. And the good news for all of you is that the Opportunity Fund incentive is just an addition to every other incentive out there. You don't have to make a choice between things. So we're going to start this morning um, with an overview for, on that by Sam Bailey, the Vice President of Economic Development for the Metro EDC. So Sam. Wonderful. Thank you, uh, Brownstein, for having me here this morning. Uh, my name is Sam Bailey. I'm with the Metro Denver Economic Development Corporation. We are oh, a little sizing. We are a privately funded economic development group covering nine counties and 70 communities across the Front Range of Colorado. Our primary function, working in partnership with both the state of Colorado, counties, and municipalities, is to support uh, primary job growth and capital investment. So, attracting new companies to relocate here and working with existing ones to expand. Many of our investors are here in the room. Thank you for being part of the economic development mission of our region. A little overview of some of the projects that we've covered in the past, which include companies like Agilent Technologies, adding $135 million capital investment in Frederick, Colorado. I'll go over Smuckers in a little bit, as well as companies like Partners Group and others. So right now, the state has a modest performance-based incentive portfolio. It does provide us access to attract job creation projects, but not uh, nearly the strength that opportunity funds and zones will when it comes to real estate investment. Most of the programs here have been supported through bipartisan state legislation and are calculation-based and driven around net new jobs and wages, less of capital investment being tailored towards a real estate development opportunity or investment. So we look at opportunity zones as really a phenomenal step forward for the state's economic development efforts in both urban and rural locations. To give you a little flavor of how those programs have worked on two major projects, I'm going to cover two case studies um, briefly before we move on to the opportunity zone discussion. So VF Corporation. Everyone just heard recently they signed um, nearly 300,000 square feet, just a few blocks from where we're sitting. That was a jobs creation project moving a Fortune 250 company from Greensboro, North Carolina, Provo, Utah, and Alameda, California, here to the Metro Denver region. We're currently working with their relocation in partnership with the Governor's Office of Economic Development. On a project like this in an urban area, the thing that we can support is the net new full-time job creation. Average wages of about $185,000 and net new job growth of 800 jobs over about an eight-year period. That incentive yields a performance-based tax credit of their corporate income tax credit of about $27 million, 13 million of which is transferable. That's what the state's able to do at this point. It's not discretionary, it's not a check up front, it's a performance-based state incentive based off of net new full-time jobs. 
Then you look at a project like Smuckers, uh, 250,000 square feet in Longmont, Colorado, off I-25 and Highway 119. That's a $340 million investment, the largest capital investment of the JM Smucker Company in the company's history, occurring just north of where we're sitting here. That's adding 400 new jobs. But that job creation project's a little bit smaller, especially with the wages, but that's about a $1.1 million strategic fund incentive, a performance-based cash grant for net new job growth. What you'll see in these programs is they only support a facet of the project. They do not support the entirety of it. It also, with these limited programs, when we work with site selection professionals and location advisors who are paid professionals hired to represent companies doing relocations, Colorado's not always on the list uh, because of the programs and assets we have available to support their investment. As you'll hear uh, shortly, Brownstein's work on Opportunity Zones gives us a greater competitive advantage, being one of the first states to really jump on this opportunity to pr provide a more holistic approach to an investments all across the state of Colorado. So that's just a brief overview of our economic development efforts, some of the projects we've worked on in the past, and you'll be hearing about how Opportunity Zones will be able to further support um, our economic development efforts across the Metro Denver region, but also the state of Colorado. So and I, I would just uh, in, encourage you, Sam will be around, and also my fantastic Uber driver, uh, JJ Ament, who's the head of the Metro EDC, will both be around. Um, but as, you know, as we talk about this and as you look at projects that are in opportunity zones, uh, don't forget um, the possibility of reaching out to the Metro EDC. They certainly can help you explore the other incentives that are available. Um, are also very good at working with the local municipalities because as you will hear from us, one of the things will be timing on how you capitalize on these, these funds and this incentive and they can be a, a great um, go-between on dealing with those local municipalities. So I'd encourage you if you have questions, talk to them um, or follow up with them afterwards. So now on to the, the meat of this, the quali Qualified Opportunity Funds. Um, and we're going to cover a lot of information. And yes, we have a stage full of Brownstein folks here today, but all for a good reason. Um, I, I'm in the real estate department, so I'm talking about a lot of this from a dirt perspective. I'm um, working hand in hand with our tax department. Um, but starting on the other end, we have Mike Feely, uh, who has will at the end talk about how he's already working with the municipalities and the jurisdictions that are all over this. And they don't direct the dollars, um, and they don't have any control over this, but they realize the great potential it has for their areas if they're already recognized as funds. So um, they're reaching out to us and trying to be connected with capital. So we're going to talk a little more about that um, and Mike's work with them. Mark Bolton, um, who just came back to us um, from being in the governor's office. And Mark was uniquely situated because he was in the governor's office when our zones were selected, so he's gonna go into that and has a great perspective on that. And then we have Eric Jensen and Greg Berger um, from our tax department. Greg is the head of the tax department, um, and it's surprising that he's actually here today because I think his, he's more a resident of our DC office um, because there's a lot of tax policy work going on out there, as you might expect, and uh, he is knee deep in that process and has an interesting insight. So. That's a brief introduction of our team because I don't want to take away uh, from the information we're going to provide to you today. But we will give you a, a history of the program, um, how the zones are qualified and they were designated orig originally, the possible type of investments uh, because it's not as simple as you think. It's not just real estate. There's other things you can do with it. The tax benefits, I think everybody may have a sense of that, but the, the ins and outs of the tax benefits. And then the differences between business zones, uh, businesses, business property. There's a lot of acronyms that Greg will like to use. They drive me a little crazy, but um, they are what they are. It's a tax code. Um, and then, you know, what the funds really are, uh, what are the rules that as we know them right now, and how do you qualify? So a lot to cover, um, but we hope to get it there. And certainly if you have questions along the way, raise your hand, uh, or we will allow time at the end. So with that, I'm going to pass it on to Mark. And Mark's going to talk about the background. All right, that sounds like it's on. Everybody can hear me okay? Awesome. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Mark Bolton. Uh, I'm going to walk through, I think, fairly quickly just a bit of history on how the uh, Opportunity Zone program came to be. Uh, the concept really began um, 
uh, in, uh, with a desire to try and incentivize investment of private capital in areas uh, that wouldn't otherwise be attractive destinations. And so that was the, that was the, the desire, the motivation behind the program. Uh, it originated in a position paper that came out of a group called the Economic Innovation Group, a DC-based think tank that was founded by a guy named Sean Parker, which you guys probably recognize was the, was the creator of Napster and the, the original president of, of Facebook. Um, the paper was written in 2015, the position paper was written in 2015 by a guy named Kevin Hassett, who's now President Trump's chief economist, uh, and Jared Bernstein, who played that same role uh, uh, for Vice President Biden when, uh, during the Obama administration. Uh, so a bipartisan uh, concept. Uh, it originally materialized as a standalone bill uh, long before it was lumped into the, the comprehensive tax reform package last December. Uh, it was introduced in Congress in February of 2017 as uh, the Investing in Opportunity Act with, with broad bipartisan support. The Senate sponsors were Tim Scott, a Republican from South Carolina, uh, Cory Booker from New Jersey, uh, and then uh, the House bill was introduced by uh, Pat Tiberi of Ohio, a Republican, and Ron Kind of Wisconsin, a uh, Democrat. And there were o roughly 100 uh, co-sponsors of the bill, split pretty evenly between Democrats and Republicans, roughly 50-50, and a broad geographic diversity among the sponsors as well. Uh, so as with most standalone bills in Congress these days, uh, the bill on itself by itself did not get much traction, but as I said, uh, during the process of putting together the uh, comprehensive tax reform package late last winter or last late last year, uh, the bill was included in uh, the Senate version of the tax reform package, not in the House version, uh, but survived the conference committee uh, process, um, really uh, championed by Senator Scott. Uh, President Trump was on board, and so it ended up in the final package and was, of course, signed into law uh, in December of last year. So uh, with the bill, in, with the law in place, it uh, became uh, states' responsibilities to go ahead and select their census tracts to become opportunity zones. And there are some mandatory requirements that are criteria that states have to apply. The, the census tracts have to be in low-income or high-poverty areas. Uh, you can, the state was able to select some contiguous uh, census tracts, as long as those weren't a significant portion of the tracts selected. They, they could only be up to 5% of the tracts selected. And so... Um, you can see the, the tracks that the state designated uh, earlier this spring in April uh, will stay in place for roughly 10 years. I think we have a, uh, a sort of still shot of a map that's coming up here shortly, um, but you'll, the, uh, uh, there's a great interactive tool on that website that you see in front of you, choosecolorado.com backslash OZ. Uh, that's OEdit's um, Opportunity Zone page, which gives you a great interactive map uh, to, to look through the zones that we, the state selected. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. So let me uh, talk a little bit through the, I'll get to the map in just a second. Well, let me talk a little bit through the sort of key considerations the state um, took into, to, uh, used to, to select its opportunity zones. Uh, the first was really a desire to sort of maximize the catalytic effect. And the state went out and did obviously a very data-driven process, but also a pretty comprehensive stakeholder engagement uh, process as well, working with economic development, uh, local economic development entities, uh, state legislators, business leaders, uh, local officials throughout the state. Uh, so the first factor that was most important uh, was really a desire to, like I said, to maximize the catalytic um, impact of these opportunity zones. And it was a, a sort of delicate balance. The state wanted to identify areas uh, where there was not too much activity. Think of a place like Rhino. Uh, I think it's a great example here because while there might be a lot of interest in taking advantage of, that, of this program in a place like Rhino, there's not as much of a community impact. Uh, but at the same time, you don't want to have a place that's totally, uh, totally uh, where there's not, I should say, nothing going on, not much going on, because the Opportunity Zone program uh, on its own is probably not sufficient to, to, to uh, trigger a whole lot of new economic activity. So trying to balance those two things and trying to maximize the catalytic activity. Uh, the next major consideration was trying to uh, establish or create uh, geographic diversity. You can see the maps here of the 126 um, uh, census tracts that the state act ultimately selected. So pretty broad geographic diversity. We have, the state has over 1,200 total census tracts, roughly 530 of those were eligible, and we landed on 126 ultimately. Um, 47 counties are covered. Uh, you can see Eastern Plains, Western Slope, uh, some metro area. Um, districts as well, uh, suburban areas, urban areas. So a pretty broad geographic diversity uh, was, a, was a critical component of this. I think roughly 60% of these are outside the Front Range area. And then the last uh, sort of critical component the state was trying to achieve was uh, trying to cover 
uh, existing major projects. So this is a list of the sort of major existing major projects in the state uh, that are covered. You can see Anschutz and uh, National Western um, Gaylord area. So some of the some of the big sort of development areas that are already underway. Uh, the state wanted to to select those as well as long as they were eligible uh, to try and uh, continue that, that progress in those areas. So I think with that, I will turn it over to Greg. Eric. Excuse me, Eric. Uh, to get into a bit more of the weeds, but that's, that's some of the history on the program and how the state came to select its, its zones. Thanks, Mark. I'm going to shift myself here. Cozy. Uh, so on the tax side, there's really three main questions that you really have to ask yourself or your investors for how you get the tax benefits that come with this. Um, those questions are uh, simply, uh, what do I invest in? what do I invest, what funds do I invest, and then what are the incentives? Um, from an overarching, just sort of broad standpoint, they're not too complicated, but obviously uh, Greg will get very much into the weeds on some of the nuances that are still a little bit unresolved. But so for the first question, what do I invest in? Um, under the code, you're supposed to invest in a qualified opportunity zone fund, which basically is a partnership or a corporation that owns 90% qualified opportunity zone property. Um, so the Qualified Opportunity Zone Fund, uh, again, it could be a corporation partnership, it can be uh, foreign or domestic, uh, and it appears that it could be either a REIT or an S-Corp as well. Um, so that the, the, the thing to note is that it can't be a disregarded entity. Uh, qualified, op qualified Opportunity Zone property is Qualified Opportunity Zone stock, which is stock of a corporation that passes certain hurdles that Greg will get into. Uh, interests in a partnership, same thing, or direct qualified opportunity zone business property, uh, which Greg will also get into. So there's really the three different things that you can own through these funds. Uh, next question is, what is it that I'm investing? Uh, in short, it's capital gains. Oddly enough, the statute itself only refers to gains. Um, however, the title to the statute says capital gains and the legislative history says capital gains. Uh, so that's really what we sort of expect uh, to be the end result. So the thing to note is if you go out and take cash out of the bank that's not some asset that you just sold or exchanged, you can invest that in a qualified opportunity zone fund, but you're not going to get the tax incentives and the tax benefits. So in order to get those benefits, it has to be capital gains or gains while the question's still up in the air. And so one issue that sort of remains uh, unresolved on those questions is that uh, one thing that you might be able to get if it's just deemed gains that you wouldn't get if it's capital gains is uh, recaptured income under 1231 for prior depreciation, for instance. Um, if you roll over your gains into a qualified opportunity zone fund, you have to do so in a within 180 days of the sale or exchange. So the third question is, what are the incentives? Uh, there's really three. One is the deferral on the capital gains that you rolled over. A second is sort of a permanent exclusion of some of those gains if you hold on to your property long enough. And then a third is the exclusion of future appreciation and gains after you've rolled your funds into those uh, qualified opportunities on fund. So more specifically about those, if you roll over the, 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 first, the first tax benefit, if you roll over your capital gains, those gains are going to be deferred until the earlier of when you sell your qualified opportunity zone fund interest in the fund or December 31st, 2026. Um, so there's, if you invest at the end of this year, there's an eight year deferral uh, potential there. Um, the second tax incentive is that you can uh, forego any recognized gains if you've hold, held the qualified opportunity zone property for five years or seven years. Uh, at the five-year mark, you can you, you get a basis step up of 10%, uh, which ends up resulting in you being able to completely not recognize that 10% of gain that you rolled over. And at seven years, you get an additional 5% for a total of 15%. The last tax incentive is that if you've held your investment in the fund for 10 years, any gain that, uh, or a 
appreciation that resulted after you put it into that fund, uh, that will not be recognized. You can make an election when you sell that asset that basically says you're not recognizing the gain and you're going to get a basis equal to the fair market value of the property at that time. So here's a chart that just sort of shows how the timing works. Um, if you start from the, less, the left, you go ahead and you sell your asset. After that, you have 180 days to roll over those funds into your Qualified Opportunity Zone fund. From there, if you hold it for five years, you're going to get the 10% basis step up. And if you hold it for an additional two years, you're going to get an additional 5% basis step up. The thing to note is that because you have to recognize your deferred gain uh, by December 31st, 2026 at the latest, um, if you don't make your investment before the end of 2019, there's no way you're gonna be able to hold it for seven years So you're before that time, so you're going to forego the opportunity to get that 5% basis step up. Uh, and if you don't roll over prior to the end of 2021, you're foregoing that 10% uh, basis step up. With that being said, if you uh, roll over any gain that you recognize or otherwise would recognize prior to December 31st, 2026, you still get to defer that gain until December 31st, 2026. You just don't get the basis step up. Uh, and then the last point is that if you hold it for 10 years, you go ahead and you uh, get to uh, basically not recognize gain on that additional appreciation. So as a quick example, uh, let's suppose at the end of 2019, you sell stock for $500, your basis was $300, so you have capital gain of $200. If you roll that $200 capital gain into a qualified opportunity zone fund uh, within 180 days and make the election to defer the gain, you don't have to recognize that gain until December 31st, 2026. Um, at year five, you're going to get a 10% basis step up. So your basis is going to increase by $20. Um, rewinding back, uh, whenever you invest anything in a qualified opportunity zone fund, the code says that your basis is going to be zero in that asset. So for purposes of this, we roll over our $200 gain, our basis is gonna be zero in that interest. After year five, it'll kick up to $20. After year seven, assuming we've held it that long, it kicks up an extra 5%. Uh, which is $10 here. Then on December 31st, 2026, assuming that we haven't sold the property before then, uh, we recognize the $170 gain that we uh, were able to defer when we rolled over into the fund, uh, less the $30 that we were able to defer by the basis step-ups or uh, not recognize as a result of the basis step-ups. Uh, thereafter, if we hold it for 10 years, any additional appreciation um, from the $200 that we initially rolled in uh, that comes back to you tax-free when you sell, provided you make the election. Okay, I'm gonna go over uh, some of the technical issues on these funds. Uh, I said the, the, the concept, again, seems relatively simple and intuitive, uh, but there are a number of uh, hurdles to get over, a number of limitations, and uh, several areas where we just need guidance. Uh, we've been hoping for guidance for some time. This is a, a key area for Treasury to issue guidance on. Uh, we've, uh, they've just recently said they'll have the regulations released by the end of this month. And they also said they may issue a second set of regulations, which uh, makes you wonder what's in the first or what's not in the first set of regulations, where they've already uh, have suggested they're going to need a second set of regulations that they say will come out before the end of the year. Uh, but and I know that Eric mentioned this. I just wanted to point this out. This is a, a, one of the fundamental limitations of opportunity zones is you need to roll over capital gain. Uh, that's, that's the toll charge for these. Gain is recognized in years, uh, uh, in, in year seven, 2026. Uh, you, if, if you don't have capital gain and you, can, you put money in an opportunity zone fund, you get none of the tax benefits of the opportunity zone fund. Now, you don't have to specifically trace the money, unlike a 1031 where the money has to go into a qualified intermediary, you just have to have had sufficient gain and you make an election on your tax return on a form uh, yet to be um, yet to be created by the IRS uh, to roll over the gain. Uh, if you do invest money that's not from capital gain in an opportunity zone fund, it's allowed, uh, it just doesn't get 
any of the tax benefits. And at least as of now, it is subject to all of the restrictions that we're going to go over in terms of, of uh, limitations on investing. So question of whether you would really want to do that uh, or if you just try to find enough investors with capital gain. So the question is, what is, what is a qualified opportunity fund? Again, it is, it is investment organized as a corporation or a partnership. Uh, one question that people asked early was, can an LLC be an opportunity fund? Uh, because the statute says partnership, it doesn't say LLC. I think everybody thinks, yes, it can, and, and I'm sure that will be clarified. Uh, more interesting, can a single member S Corp be one? Technically, it could because that's a corporation, but it seems inconsistent with the idea that this is really a fund and what's not allowed is somebody individually to roll over their capital gain into an individual project outside of a fund structure and a single member S Corp seems a little, maybe a little too clever to get around that issue. Uh, but we'll wait and see what happens in the regulations if they, if they either uh, uh, affirmatively say that's okay or, or restrict it. Um, again, it has to be organized for the purpose of investing in qualified property. Uh, and that is the qualified opportunity business property, which would be uh, in a real estate context, for example, the, the, the fund could own a building directly. It could own a business directly. We'll get into some uh, problems with owning businesses directly. Or it can own uh, stock or partnership interests that actually run opportunity zone businesses. 90% of the assets must be in one of these three, these three categories. The business property, the stock, or the partnership interest. So only 10% of the assets of the fund can be assets other than those that we just described. Uh, and then uh, there's, uh, it has to be certified, but the IRS, initially was gonna be some sort of process for a treasury to certify. The way you certify, you mark on your tax return, you're a fund. Okay. Uh, this is the slide that Nicole does not like, but uh, we tax people like, like acronyms. Uh, there's, there's three different uh, terms in the, in the code. Uh, and when you read over them, they glaze over them, they all, they all look alike, but they're different. The qualified opportunity zone property, again, the three types of property that the fund has to hold 90% of. A qualified opportunity zone business, the business that the corporation or partnership has to uh, run and qualified opportunity zone business property, tangible property that the fund can hold directly. You would think that there would be very little difference between holding a business directly and holding it through a partnership or a corporation, but there's very significant uh, differences that, that may suggest you don't hold the business directly. Okay, so qualified opportunity zone business property. Again, this would be the if, if, if the fund was going to hold uh, uh, a business directly. And, and for this purposes, uh, people are comfortable that a, a real estate project would be a trade or business, it would be a qualified opportunity zone uh, business property. Um, it is a question of whether if it was a triple net lease, it would be a trade or business, but that's one of the things that will be addressed in regulations. Uh, this is tangible property used in a trade or business. Key here is only tangible property. So this is one of the problems with holding uh, an operating business that may have goodwill or intangibles directly because those intangibles are not qualified opportunity zone business property. And remember only uh, at least 90% of the value of your assets have to be uh, the, the qualified property. So if you have too much intangible value in a business you hold directly, uh, at least as it's currently crafted, you may end up uh, having a problem with your fund qualifying. Has to be acquired by purchase after 2017. The original use has to commence with the fund or the fund has to substantially improve the property, this tangible property. Again, in the real estate context, um, there's some question about what original use means. Uh, some people have suggested that they should have a rule that if it's been vacant for a year, the original use would be uh, that the opportunity fund uh, purchasing it would be original use. But right now, nobody knows what original use means. And the substantial improvement is a very high standard that we'll go over. Uh, it, it basically have to spend as much improving it as you spent on, on purchasing it. 
Uh, substantially all the use of the property in the zone is in the zone for substantially all the funds holding period. So this is easier with real estate because you know where it is. Uh, applying this to a, a, an operating business that maybe has uh, storage yards outside the zone, customers outside the zone, uh, deliveries uh, is more difficult. The substantially all terms here are not defined and that's one of the critical pieces that uh, we hope will be in the regulations in the next couple of weeks. A qualified opportunity zone stock, again, this is another uh, asset you could buy. Uh, it has to be a domestic corporation. You have to acquire the stock after 2017 as original issue. So you cannot go buy the stock from a current shareholder. You have to contribute the money to the corporation in exchange for the stock. So this isn't really a way to purchase stock from, from an existing business. It's a way to fund a business. Um, it has to be solely for cash. Uh, this, uh, the reason why, the, the, and this is one of the rules that also applies to some enterprise, uh, some earlier uh, enterprise zone things. Less than 5% of the business property has to be attributed to non-qualified financial property. One of the keys on that, it's, uh, so that would also include non-financial, non non-qualified financial property, includes cash, except for reasonable working capital reserves. It includes uh, stock or partnership interest. So, it really puts a limit on the ability for a corporation or a partnership to uh, have subsidiary entities because those will be non-qualifying assets subject to this 5%. Uh, we say certain SIN businesses are not permitted. This is a carryover from uh, tax exempt bond rules uh, where you couldn't finance certain sorts of entities with tax exempt bonds. Uh, interestingly, it includes golf courses, liquor stores, suntan facilities. Uh, Skating facilities, yeah. So uh, whoever came up with that list, I don't know, but that, that's, that's it. Okay, so uh, golf courses is probably the most relevant one. Uh, I didn't know it was a sin, but. Uh, okay, and again, it's a, it's a sin the way. It is, it is, yeah. Uh, but so, and again, there's this standard that during substantially all of the holding period, the, the, the corporation is a qualified opportunity zone business, and we don't know what substantially all means. Partnership interests, these are the same rules for corporations. It's just for partnership. Interestingly, there is a, a difference. The partnership rules have a specific uh, limitation where if you put money into the, part, into, into the corporation, sorry, the corporate rules have a limitation. If you put money into the corporation and then you redeem out an existing shareholder, it will be viewed as a purchase of that shareholder interest. There's not a similar limitation for partnership interest. So there's a question of whether you could essentially cash out an existing partner if you're gonna buy uh, an interest instead of just contributing the money in. Uh, my guess is they will apply a similar limitation in the regulations, but we'll wait to see. It may be easier there may be more opportunities to structure acquisition of businesses through partnerships than there are corporations unless they fix that distinction in the regulations. Okay, qualified opportunity zone business. Uh, what is this? This is what, and, and I call these portfolio corporations or partnerships, uh, must be. Uh, not the business, but the portfolio corporations or partnerships. Uh, it has to be a trader business, substantial portion of the intangible assets used in active conduct of trade or business. And this is, this is important. So the qualified opportunity zone business, it, it acknowledges that there will be intangible assets. There's no limit on, on the intangible assets you can have in the qualified opportunity zone business. Unlike the qualified opportunity zone property that you've held directly, that can only be tangible property. So if you have an operating business run through a corporation or a partnership, as long as, and it has intangible assets, as long as those intangible assets are used in the co conduct of its trade or business, those are not bad assets. 50% uh, of the gross income has to be from the active conduct. It's not one of the sin businesses. And less than 5% tribute to non-qualified financial property, which we just discussed, which means you can have working, working capital. Um, we'd mentioned the first user substantial improvement requirement. If the property is not, uh, if if it's not original use, and we don't know what original use means, some comments have suggested with respect to real estate, if it's been vacant for a year, uh, first use should be by the, by the fund that had acquired it. Uh, question of what if there is a vacant lot that's been operated as a parking lot, and you wanna buy it and build something on it. Probably it's not 
first use, but you're probably going to have improvements that are at least double of what you paid for it. So, so it may not be that much of an issue. Um, if it's not first use, during a 30-month period after acquisition, you have to put improvements in equal to uh, the adjusted basis, equal to what you paid for it, um, or a dollar more than you paid for it, actually. There's some question about when the 30-month period starts. Uh, there's been comments that says that, that the, the fund should be able to choose it. It should be like a commencement of construction, uh, not necessarily date of acquisition of the property. That'll be one of the things that will be uh, clarified in regulations. Uh, and it's unclear how you apply this to operating businesses. What assets do you substantially improve? Do you uh, just look at the value of the tangible property? If you go out and acquire more tangible property uh, equipment, does that count? Uh, they'll need to provide some guidance on, on how you apply the substantial improvement uh, rules to existing operating businesses. We talked a bit about the 90% requirement. You remember 90% of the assets have to be invested in the Qualified Opportunity Zone property. That's either the tangible property that's the Qualified Opportunity Zone business property or the partnership interest or corporations that run uh, qualified businesses. You measure this 90% test twice a year. Uh, the way the statute is written, you could conceivably have a measuring date the day after you get money. Uh, let's say your calendar, your taxpayer, your measuring dates, uh, end of June, end of December. Uh, you get a bunch of money in on December 28th, uh, and you haven't deployed it by December 31st, you've probably failed this standard uh, as written. So there is, this, this has been an area of a lot of comments. There's got to be some sort of runway to deploy capital, uh, both in terms of a fund just getting money in from investors and with respect to real estate projects, being able to have money that is, that you need to hold while you're th going through your construction, construction phase. So we expect that regulations will come out that will allow uh, some sort of reasonable runway either for construction projects or for a fund just deploying its assets. But as, if you read the statute literally now, there is no leeway. Uh, and this is, one of the, this is one of the things that is, uh, if, if people are starting funds now, and there are, there are funds, if you get on Google, you can find prospectuses and you can find things. And if you read the tax disclosure, it'll be very uh, scary for you because they say we really have no idea if any of this will work. Um, <laughs> It's longer than that because a tax lawyer wrote it, but that's basically what it says. Um, so, but a number of those funds, they're not taking in a lot of money up front because they're concerned that they'll fail this test. They'll take it in project by project and, and, and in time so they, so they can satisfy this test. Our expectation is the regulations that will come out by the end of the month will provide some, some uh, flexibility in this standard. Uh, I point out cash. Again, cash is not a qualified asset. Uh, if you have uh, you know, a, a, a building that's worth a million dollars and you have, or let's say $900,000, and you have uh, $91,000 of cash, you, you're not a qualified opportunity fund as currently written. There is no, uh, cash is bad in terms of figuring out your 90% test unless it's cash held by the partnership or the corporation and it's a reasonable working capital reserve. Those rules about the reasonable working capitals are, do not apply to the qualified opportunities on business property, the property that's held directly by the fund, at least not yet. The regulations could provide uh, some flexibility because it seems like they, they should. Uh, but as of now, uh, managing cash investments cash holdings in a fund is a critical piece of making sure the fund, the, the fund qualifies as a qualified opportunity fund. Uh, what happens if you don't? Well, what's interesting, there's a, there's a penalty. Uh, but by the statute, also, you're, you're not a qualified opportunity fund. So the question is, if I fail to meet this test, do I simply lose all the, do my investors lose all the benefits of a fund? Because I haven't satisfied one of the principal requirements of the fund. But if that was the case, what would be the reason for this penalty? I mean, if I'm not a fund, why do I own a penalty? So the thought is that probably 
at least for some period of time, you'll still be eligible as a qualified opportunity fund, but you're going to be subject to this penalty. And the way the statute is written, this penalty is, is really very steep. Uh, it's, it's basically 5% standard payment rate, which today is 5%, could go up. 5% uh, on your, I'll call it your excess bad holdings, the value of what you hold that is uh, of the, of the non-qualifying assets that's in excess of 10% of the value of all your assets. Nobody knows how you measure value. Um, but the way it's written, that's 5% per month. I mean, the 5% underpayment rate is an annual rate. But the way the statute's written, you have to pay 5% of that excess every month. That's a 60% per year penalty. Uh, people think that they'll say that 5% is really the annual rate and you pay the proportionate share of that, you know, one twelfth of it per month. But that's not what the statute says right now. So as of now, this penalty is a very draconian uh, fix, which, which also is another reason why people are very concerned about being able to meet the 90% test. Uh, question is, what about activities outside the zone? Again, remember, we're running businesses. That, so for real estate, it's pretty easy to tell whether your property is in the zone or outside the zone. For businesses, there may be other things going on. Uh, substantially, all the tangible property must be located within the zone. Uh, the ability to use subsidiaries to operate non-zone activities is limited. The reason why that's limited is because, remember, a, a, a subsidiary stock or partnership interest is, is a bad asset. It's a non-financial asset. So its value can only be 5% of, of your overall value. So right now, if you have an operating business that has uh, businesses inside the zone or out, and outside the zone, it probably requires almost two separate structures, a fund structure for the business operating in the zone and brother sister structure out, outside, outside the zone unless, unless they provide some, some guidance. Uh, and again, 50% of gross income must be attributed to business activity in the zone. Uh, and before I get to exit strategies, there's, there's one other thing I wanted to point out, uh, which has come up, and I don't think, I have a slide, I don't have a way to pull this up. Here. No, you don't. Okay. So um, one, of the, one of the issues, particularly in real estate, uh, that we've we faced is, is doing transactions with related parties. Uh, so these zones are great. There's a lot of... And, and let's take it just for the real estate, real estate side. A lot of people now have property that are in a zone that they want to do something with. They want to, they want to build on it. But remember, the, the, the opportunity fund has to acquire the property by purchase. Okay. So that person owns the property. Um, they could sell it to an opportunity zone fund, but it has to be unrelated to them. And unrelated is 20%. So you could sell your property and you could invest less than 20% in the zone, and that would be fine. But a lot of people who own property, they actually want to own more than 20% of the vertical development. Uh, but there's a requirement that the zone purchases the property, and it has to purchase it from unrelated parties. So there are some structures that we think will work now. Uh, we'll see if the regulations limit them. But for example, if you have vacant land, could have a long-term lease of that land to the long-term ground lease to the uh, opportunity fund. You could own 80, 90, 99.9% .9 of the opportunity fund. And that opportunity fund then would build the vertical. There has not been a, a purchase, right? The, it's a long-term ground lease. Uh, so there hasn't been a related party sale in that context if that lease is a true lease and it would be very critical that that lease will, is not characterized as something other than a lease for tax purposes. So there are some ways around it, but the related party rule is a, is a significant limitation for people who already own assets within a zone and want to develop them instead of just sell them to an entity that they have a less than 20% interest in. Okay, so exit strategies. The exemption requires that you sell your interest in the Qualified Opportunity Fund. There's a question of what happens if the Qualified Opportunity Fund itself sells the underlying property. As currently written, that doesn't give you an exemption. Um, it says that the exemption is from the sale of your interest in the fund, not the fund's sale of the asset it has held for over 10 years. They may allow the asset sale to go through, but the reason why I point this out, when you're structuring the funds, the exit strategy has to be where you can see that you'll sell an interest in the fund. 
What does this mean practically? It means this is very difficult for multi-asset funds because the assets will probably be sold at, at different times. So unless there's some leeway on this in the regulations, you're probably going to have single asset funds so you can sell the interests in the, in the funds. Now this is something that they should clarify because the intent of, that, that limitation is really uh, contrary to the intent of the statute, but, but that's what it says right now. Also, the uh, statute says regulations uh, will address uh, how a fund can reinvest. So if, a, if, you, if the fund does sell an asset and, and there's a huge gain, is there ability to roll that over into another qualified opportunity fund asset? There should be, um, but until there's regulations come out that let you that, tell you that, there, there won't be. Uh, okay, so some open issues. As we said, definitions of the term substantially all and original use, very important. The ability of the fund to sell assets and roll them over. The time to make initial investments. Hopefully the, the regulations will provide some sort of leeway. Uh, the type of gain that can be deferred, as Eric said, right now everybody thinks it's going to be capital gain, even though the statute just says gain. Uh, and operating businesses with little tangible property. Uh, right now, practically you would have to do that through the corporation or the, or the partnership. And the related party limitations, particularly with the land. Uh, there are some state tax implications. Remember, this is a federal program. In some states, they'll piggyback to it, and you'll get, uh, you'll get a, not more leverage on state. New York has said they will. Uh, we're working with D.C. to see if they will. Um, other states, you'll probably, even if you have this exemption on the federal level, you may not have uh, a state law exemption. So that's a lot of questions uh, where there's not many answers yet. Hopefully, there will be another three weeks. So. Um, I just want to talk briefly about sort of what's going on in the state of Colorado because I do think the state has really been at the forefront of this. Some other states didn't really even pay attention. This was, as Mark mentioned, passed in the 11th hour, the very end of December, and it was picked up in the news stories uh, well before any of the state economic development officers sort of actually were aware of it. But Colorado was at the forefront. They identified their zones faster than anybody. And the uh, State uh, Office of Economic Development has been extremely proactive in this. So they've had multiple um, meetings with stakeholders, which include the municipalities, um, different areas, to get them in to understand how they can connect the dollars that are expected to come in the door with the actual projects on the ground. Um, and to that end, the state OEdit is working to put together an actual database where they can connect, um, again, dollars, projects, municipalities. So you have certain municipalities uh, like Colorado Springs, which it's hard to see on this map because um, it's so broad, but Colorado Springs actually has a fair amount of space. And so their local officials are working to put together an exact database of these are our pieces of property that we have, these are what they're zoned for, these are the type of projects and businesses we would like in there so that that is readily available for developers and capital to come in the door and, and get on the ground. Mike, I wanted you just to talk a little bit because you've actually been contacted by a number of the jurisdictions and right. working with them to see how they can do this. It does bother them, I think, that they don't have any control over um, the zones or the funds or how it all works, but they certainly want to be proactive with it. Right. We have, uh, uh, we have received a lot of communications uh, from municipalities that are waiting for the state, waiting for the regulations to finally, finally come out, and waiting for the state to complete its work. Um, and I think it goes back to what Sam said at the beginning of the, uh, because we basically have a very modest portfolio of economic incentives in the states. And this is one where people have said, wait a minute now, this is really significant. So we're hearing from a lot of uh, counties, municipalities, Carolyn White, who heads our, uh, one of our chairs of our real estate department and works with municipalities and local governments throughout the state, uh, gets calls all the time like, we're in an opportunity zone or we're adjacent to an opportunity zone, what can we do? And really layering the economic incentive packages that, that, that are available, and that's what the state is trying to put together in its database, whether uh, JJ's shop or Carolyn or, or the state ultimately gets it, that's where the real bang for the buck is gonna come. And uh, it's, it's uh, uh, you know, cities and counties right now are trying to look at um, uh, anchor institutions that can enhance it. They're uh, inventorying uh, property that uh, could be available for, uh, for use in the Opportunity Zone project. So there's a lot, lot to be done and there's a lot of resources and we will all feel very comfortable when the regulations are finally issued and we kind of know really what we're dealing with and answering some of your questions. 
Yeah, and, and I would encourage you, if you haven't spent time um, on the map, to go in and look at it. Because I think one of the misnomers out there is, you know, what this is distressed, it's, it's blighted property. Um, but when you look at the map and the way the census tracts came down, because of the contiguous um, ability to identify these, that they're not traditionally blighted. Um, it's interesting uh, what has been chosen um, and the purpose behind it. Uh, so if you really study it, there's a lot of different, and I can't avoid the word opportunity, um, out there throughout the state. Um, people are excited about the potential for housing, multifamily housing, and how this can do it. Um, if you look a lot at the map here, all the stuff along the, the Eastern Plains, um, that was really targeted as infrastructure. So wind, solar, um, this is a great opportunity for new equity investment in that space um, as well. And so it really is meant to be a broad, diverse group. And I would say even more than the private segment, the local jurisdictions in Colorado have jumped all over this, particularly the ones that are not um, in Metro Denver. Um, however, I will say, when you look at the map, there are some interesting sites in Metro Denver um, around Mile High, around National Western. There's stuff up in Boulder, which gr creates great opportunity for actual business inve investment um, and venture fund type of things, not just real estate. So I would encourage you to look at that and just know um, that the municipalities are all over this. And one of the things we're really working with them as well is utilizing our relationship to understand help them understand how they can proactively make this work. As Greg mentioned, there's the 30-month runway, um, and if you're dealing with real estate, how does that work with entitlements? And so we are encouraging them and hopefully pushing them that way that they can create a shortened entitlement process for something in opportunity zones so that the 30-month window becomes less of a concern for them. Uh, but I thought it was important for everybody to understand sort of how the state is looking at this and how jurisdictions are looking at this because it just gives you more of that flavor. It was bipartisan to start with, the jurisdictions are on board, state OEDIT is on board, so everybody is supporting this, um, which gives it great, fantastic runway for um, projects. And, and my favorite thing, and I stole from somebody, but I'll continue to use it, is this is not intended to make bad projects good, it's intended to make good projects great, and everybody's working along that way. Thank you all for being here this morning. Thank you to our panel, and um, it is tax geeky, but it's actually interesting tax geeky because it does have such amazing potential to result in some really great development, really great investment. Um, we're happy to answer your questions. As we said, we're, we're trying to also be a connector because we're getting calls from so many different places between projects, municipalities, um, funds, so we think there's gonna be a lot of synergy, and we know that uh, Colorado is already a great hot investment market and so we are seeing a lot of dollars coming from outside saying where can we put this, do you have a developer, what, what can we do with our money, we're excited about this. So thank you very much for being here. Um, we will email to everyone this presentation and I would anticipate that uh, hopefully those regulations come out and once, you know, we'll give Greg a day or two um, and Eric a day or two to digest those new regulations um, and then we'll reach back out to everybody with our interpretation of those. So thank you guys very much. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.